Welcome to the Journal Editorial Report. I'm Paul Gigo. A new sign of surging inflation with the Labor Department reporting this week that wholesale prices increased 9.7% in January, nearly doubling estimates. This follows last week's news that consumer prices rose 7.5% from a year ago, the fastest rate in 40 years. And as prices continue to rise, all eyes are on the Federal Reserve as the central bank considers just how high and how fast to raise interest rates. Let's bring in Kevin Hassett. He served as chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. Kevin, welcome. So you, sir, Thanks. predicted this. You said it would happen when a lot of other people said it wouldn't. And you also predicted that, that prices might go into double-digit increases on an annual basis. Is that where we're headed here And after you've seen the, the recent yeah. reports? You know, we're already there because if you look at the trajectory of the recent months, you know, the numbers that you're citing, uh, you know, and most people cite in the news are year over year. And so if the first half of the year is kind of weak, then if the second half of year accelerates, then it might not be so visible. I think right now we are basically at about a 10 percent inflation rate. And that's a real challenge for the Fed because that's way, way above where they want it to be. And the history of Fed actions, I know I know you want to talk about what the Fed's going to do, is that right. they really got to get the interest rate up around the inflation rate to get ahead of the curve. And it's pretty simple, right? Like if you could borrow money at 2% and the price of thing you might buy is going up at 10%, then you should buy it now, right? Uh, and, and so the Fed, if there's a big gap between the interest rate and the inflation rate, really isn't going to make much uh, uh, progress on inflation. And so I'm very, very worried about what the Fed's going to have to do this year. You know, right now, markets think it's about 25 basis points of meeting, but it's going to have to be way more than that if they actually want to slow inflation. All right. I want to get there, uh, uh, elaborate on that. But uh, uh, as you sure. look back, what are the main the, the causes of this inflation? Because there's two schools of thought, I guess. Uh, one is it's fiscal mm -hmm. policy, excessive spending. Uh, another says it's, it was actually monetary. How, where do you, uh, uh, right. you know, that is too much money that the Fed printed, too much uh, uh, chasing too few goods. Which right. do you well, well, you know, it's actually, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both, uh, but I can explain really quickly. The, the, what happened in the past when the Fed was like doing quantitative easing is that they were buying bonds, which, you know, throws money into the economy. But then right. the money was going into reserve accounts for banks and just, you know, parked in the basement at the Fed. What happened this time, beginning uh, with the Trump policies, but really accelerating under Biden, is that the Fed printed money and then they mailed it to people to spend. Right. And so it wasn't hanging out in the basement and like the bank's reserve accounts. It was literally alive in the economy. And so it takes two things. It takes the Fed monetizing the debt and it takes, you know, a fiscal policy that's super expansionary to get inflation off like this. But the real big policy mistake is what President Biden did, you know, right after he, he came into office and what they did, you know, through the summer, which is that they they really had big, big stimulus and spending plans right. uh, that were passed. Uh, even though that we had more or less filled the hole for COVID and the economy had recovered. And so they went into a full employment economy and they stimulated the heck out of it. And I think that's why inflation is now up in the double digits. All right. Well, the implications of what you were saying before about having to get uh, uh, above the actual inflation inflation rate or close to it to control inflation. I, I don't see anybody at the Federal Reserve talking about that. James Bullard is sort of an outlier outlier as a hawk, the Fed bank president. And he said it may have to go above two percent. That's a lot. I mean, <laughs> are you saying that even that is uh, is is really underestimating how far they'll have to go? 
Right. Well, well, the one thing that it might be true, and, it, and it's like how the world has changed since you and I were little kids, is that it used to be that the Fed had to lift rates, you know, well above the inflation rate to get inflation to come down. And it could be that somehow the world is so sensitive to monetary policy that if they move a couple of points that markets crash, we have a recession and inflation starts to be under control. I don't think so. Uh, but that would be the story, you know, like as the Fed starts to move and, and maybe they're going to move 25 basis points, probably at the at the March meeting. That's what their minutes suggest uh, that if they make that move, I think it's already priced in the markets. Uh, but if all of a sudden, you know, their language is a little hostile and you see like a huge market crash, then maybe maybe the world is different for some reason. It, 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 it could be, you know, we're, we're in uncharted territory. We've had the highest inflation since forever, the lowest interest rates since forever, the biggest deficit uh, since forever since World War II, you know, I, I mean, so, so all of that together is a recipe for, you know, risk-off bets uh, and befuddlement for economists. Well, you know, but it's hardly reassuring to say, well, you know, maybe they won't have to go as high on rates because we'll be in a recession. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and, yeah. and, and that's the question I have for you. As the Fed moves, you know, they've been uh, at zero, the zero bound for so long and they've been buying bounds bonds are still buying them, right? They're not going to stop until next right. month. They've been doing that for so long. Uh, how much of uh, financial dislocation are we, and, and perhaps slower growth are we going to see as they go back up, uh, up the ladder? Well, we're going to see, you know, really slow growth. The question is, when does the Fed uh, assume that, that I'm right, you know, uh, again about inflation, like I was about a year ago, and that, that they aren't doing enough? Well, then at some point, they're going to have to, you know, take out the sledgehammer. Uh, my guess is they wouldn't do it right before an election. Uh, but, you know, the Atlanta Fed's GDP now for the first quarter is already like in the ones. You know, right. so we're pretty close to zero growth, which means stagflation. And so it doesn't take a big negative shock to get from here to a couple of negative quarters. But my guess is that the Fed's going to like not take big enough action. And then early next year or late this year, they're going to have to start hitting us with like, you know, wallops in between meetings and so on to try to get inflation under control. Because I think, you know, going into the summer, I don't see how it's not, you know, north of seven, around 10 percent. And then maybe in the second half of the year, it starts to slow. If COVID is gone, maybe a bunch of people come back into the labor force. So there's a big increase in supply. It's possible, but it doesn't seem super likely to me. All right. Kevin Hassett, thanks very much for that forecast. Appreciate it. Thanks. Still Paul. ahead, uh, as special counsel John Durham continues to unravel the Trump-Russia collusion story, a closer look at what his latest court filings tell us and how Hillary Clinton is responding. And right on cue, the noise machine gets turned up, doesn't it? They've been coming after me again lately, in case you might have noticed. It's funny, the more trouble Trump gets into, the wilder the charges and conspiracy theories about me seem to get. That was Hillary Clinton this week at the New York State Democratic Convention, dismissing the latest details and special counsel John Durham's investigation, calling it a right-wing lie meant to distract from Donald Trump's scandals. Clinton's comments come as, a Durham, as a Durham continues to investigate the origins of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, claiming in a legal filing last week that a private contractor aided the Clinton campaign in concocting 
the false collusion narrative. With a tech executive named Rodney Joffe working with other researchers to collect proprietary internet data, including records from Trump Tower and the White House. Let's bring in Wall Street Journal columnist Kim Strassel and Holman Jenkins. So, Kim, uh, what uh, did we learn that's new in the Durham filing, and uh, why is it important? So we knew last year that in addition to the Steele dossier, there was this other effort of these private researchers um, to work with the same uh, Clinton lawyers, the same Clinton Oppo research team, um, and to deliver that information to the FBI, claiming a, another collusion aspect of this. What we learned this week is that those researchers uh, exploited their access um, to government data that had been provided to a government contractor uh, to look at data, including records that came from Trump Tower, from Donald Trump's uh, Manhattan apartment, and also for some period of time, records from the White House, um, which is really all quite remarkable. But what it means, Paul, is that when Donald Trump said people were actually spying on him, people were actually spying on him. So, Holman, uh, the, uh, the, a lot of the press is debunking this and saying, look, it wasn't spying because this was a, a, a information gathered as part of a, a regular government contract. And somehow, the, the, so that was available, and, uh, and uh, Joffe and others just, uh, just, uh, just took that. They weren't really spying. It was just sort of routine surveillance. How do you respond to that? Well, it, it's a semantic distinction that is completely uninteresting to anybody who's following this story. The key uh, revelation from all of the all of the things that Durham has put out is that all of these Trump Russia uh, confabulations were completely made up uh, smears promoted by Democrats to the FBI and the media. You can uh, you know debate whether looking at uh, what's called DNS lookups from one computer to another constitutes spying. You're not reading the messages or the transmissions in, on the Internet. You're just seeing which uh, computers are talking to each other. But, you know, it, it, it's a distinction without a difference. It's clear from uh, uh, Durham's report that they use this information to fabricate a fake narrative about Trump-Russia collusion. And in, Coleman, in particular, this, this example was the relations, alleged relationship between the Trump campaign or Trump organization and, uh, and the Alpha Bank, Russia's Alpha Bank. Is that totally concocted? Completely. I mean, there, look, uh, all of your Internet devices are constantly pinging other websites all the time, you know, from the Web pages you download to the spam you click on to the adware on your computer. These there's this stuff happening all the time. So you can find things between any two websites. But there was no pattern. There was no exchange of information found that constitutes this idea that that Trump was coordinating with Alpha Bank to try and steal the election. There was also a Michigan uh, healthcare firm that was tied into this too, and it never made any sense. And it was simply an attempt to find something in this random pattern of internet transmission that you could fashion into a semi-plausible theory that there was something going on when there wasn't. Kim, uh, if uh, if Jaffe was uh, in fact uh, it was all up uh, on the up and up, this was just doing uh, uh, normal government work. Why would you take what you learned and walk it over to Democratic lawyers who were and others who were working for the Clinton campaign? That strikes me as uh, not. I mean, if you have a government contract, that wouldn't be in the in the language of that contract. Tell Democrats about it. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah, bingo. I mean, I think that you just put your finger on what smells bad here. Uh, again, I was saying this is the same playbook. If, as a government contractor, if you really are alarmed by some finding out there on the Internet, your first job is to go to your government con like master and give them that information. Instead, Joffe goes over uh, to Democratic lawyers operating for the Clinton team and for the Democratic National Committee. They spend weeks writing up white papers, and then even them, Paul, then they don't take them to the FBI. They go to the press first, and only later do they belatedly deliver this to the FBI. Of course, part of that was to be able to say to the press, look, there's a, an ongoing investigation as a basis of this material we gave. That was the exact same thing they did with the Steele dossier, the exact same routine. Holman, uh, the latest uh, spin on this from some of the press, uh, New York Times and others, is that uh, Durham made a new filing in response to an attempt by Sussman, who he's indicted to, uh, to uh, uh, get uh, some of uh, Durham's earlier filings stricken. But somehow Durham distanced himself from the interpretations of the media about his filing. What's your response to that? No, he didn't. He basically defended the use of the information that he put out there because it was part of a filing that was aimed at challenging the judge to examine conflicts of interest on the part of Sussman's lawyer, who also has represented Hillary Clinton campaign officials who are likely to be witnesses or possibly even defendants in future cases. And so all he, all uh, Durham did uh, was say that I, what I did was necessary and completely justified by the petition that I had put before the judge. I don't know how they got out of that, that, that he was somehow apologizing for anything because he wasn't, although he is not responsible and never can be for what the press makes of his filings. And, and saying that is just saying the truth. Okay, thanks, uh, Kim. Thanks, Holman. When we come back, San Francisco parents revolt as three school board members are recalled in a landslide. The message for Democrats heading into the midterms next. Everybody thinks they can win Daytona. I want to be in the show and intend to win this thing. I think women can bring a whole different perspective. I want to be known as Daytona 500 winning Spire Motorsports team. Can't get it straight. I'll just fire everybody. Daytona is a place where magic can happen. Road to Daytona. Stream it all this week before the big race. Only on Fox Nation. San Francisco residents this week overwhelmingly voting to recall three members of the city school board, fed up parents booting the board members amid accusations that they put woke politics, such as renaming schools, above the needs of children during the pandemic. Mayor London Breed, who supported the recall, said the message from voters was clear. It's time to get back to educating children. Last night during the race, uh, the voters sent a clear message a clear message as it relates to the school board and the need to begin the process to refocus on our children and on what's most important in their lives and what's most important for the future of our schools in San Francisco. We're back with Wall Street Journal columnist Dan Henninger and Kim Strassel. So, Dan, uh, the magnitudes here of this recall were stunning. I mean, it, it's really hard to lose three to one to four to one in any election, much less a recall. Yeah. Well, how do you explain it? Well, you explain it by the simple fact that the liberals in San Francisco had 
had enough with the progressives in San Francisco. I know the board of supervisors blame the outcome on what uh, she called closet Republicans. You know what the Republican vote is in San Francisco? Six percent. So you can't blame this one on the right. Uh, they did it to themselves. And, you know, it is indeed about the schools there. The schools were closed. Uh, the closing of the schools is going to be, I think, a kind of a time bomb issue around the country. But bear in mind that San Francisco has got problems beyond the schools. There are homeless tents all over the city. The city is beset by crime. And it is mostly run by the left, by progressives. Right. And so what is showing, being shown here is that the progressive ideas, at least in some of the ones expressed by the school board members who are recalled, people disagree with them, but they're also very upset about the progressives' competence, their ability to simply run the government. And that redounds back to Mayor Breed herself, who is up for re-election soon. And this has kind of sent a thunderclap across the Democratic Party because if voters are losing faith in the Democrats who are in charge of cities like this, they've got a really hard road to hoe uh, in the elections this coming November. Uh, Kim, this idea that, uh, I mean, typically school board elections, uh, or for that matter, any local elections, really don't s signal national trends. Um, could this be an exception? And I say that because we've seen this parental revolt that Dan signaled around the country. And, of course, a lot of cities are unhappy about crime. They're unhappy about uh, the, uh, the schools being closed. They're unhappy about mandates and masks on children and so on. Are we talking about this might be the beginning of a, of a, of a uh, might be a signal of what could happen in November? Yeah, I'd, I'd put it this way, Paul. I think we've been seeing a number of signals. This just happens to be one of the starkest. If you look, you know, last year you were talking about parental revolts. Look at Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin ran very much on that subject and, and took what was otherwise a state that people said Democrats had a 10-point advantage in. Uh, look at Minneapolis, where liberal voters voted down the defund the police initiative. Look at New York City, where liberal voters put Eric Adams in place. Uh, because they're concerned about crime. So we're seeing this in cities across the country. Democrats have a big problem because schools, uh, education, crime, and, and pocketbook issues like inflation are always the top issues of, uh, for voters. And if you have even voters on the left who are very angry about this, who exactly do Democrats go to to win elections this fall? Uh, Dan, one of the things you're seeing in the press now is just the beginning of even the, the, the liberal press, uh, Washington mm -hmm. Post, uh, others, New York Times, saying, hmm, maybe the progressives, maybe the squad, maybe AOC and all of, the, uh, all of their issues, that's not working too well. Uh, I, I guess the question I would ask them is, hey, where were you a year ago or two years ago when some of us were saying, that's a dumb idea. Those aren't going to work. Is, is, do you think that there's finally figuring out the Democratic Party that, uh, that going as far left as they have was a mistake? And, and can they distance themselves uh, from it enough between now and November? Well, that, <clears throat> that's the question. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is about being a day late and a dollar short. And I think that's where the Democrats are right now. Uh, a lot of us who've been raising these issues and trying to simply do it in a straightforward way for at least two years have wondered why did the Democrats stick so long with this plan? I mean, that includes Joe Biden, the Build Back Better bill. I right. mean, they had everything but the kitchen sink in there. Every Democrat left-wing wish list that you could imagine was piled into one piece of legislation. Uh, personally, Paul, I got to say this. 
I think it's a good development because I have written for a while now that I think the progressive left's ideas were extremely destructive, not just of that party, but of American society and culture in general. And if they get marginalized like this and some of these uh, even liberal or more moderate Democrats begin to grab control of that party again, I think it would be a very productive thing for American politics. Kim, uh, we don't have too much time, but uh, what's the opportunity for Republicans here? What should they stress? What themes should they stress to, uh, uh, to, to, to make their point to voters? Well, they're obviously doing the, the, the obvious right now, which is stressing the incompetence and the failure of those ideas. What they haven't done and what would really help them is to embrace their own common sense answers to these, which happen to be very much a conservative platform anyway on crime, economics, cutting taxes, what, what we need to do to get the economy uh, and crime and education all working again. They need to develop that plan. Yeah, school choice should be a 50-state a, a uh, uh, theme for the Republicans. All right, still ahead, as the Russia-Ukraine conflict escalates, could American gas come to Europe's rescue? As the Ukraine crisis escalates, anxiety is growing over Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas and rising energy prices at home and abroad. But uh, my next guest says the U.S. is helping to fill that void as domestic oil and gas production ramps up, with U.S. exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe exceeding Russia's pipeline deliveries for the first time ever last month. Daniel Jurgen is vice chairman of IHS Market and author of The New Map, Energy, climate, and the clash of nations. Uh, Dan, great to see you. Appreciate Thank it. You. Uh, so, oil prices now above ninety dollars a barrel. Uh, are they headed north of that? All the way, maybe more higher than a hundred dollars. And what's causing it? Well, two things are causing the price to go up. One, of course, it's a very tight market. Demand has recovered much more strongly than people had anticipated. People are using more oil around the world. And the second thing that's happening is, uh, of course, Ukraine uh, crisis. And Russia is uh, one of the three biggest oil producers in the world, along with the United States. And if you have the U.S. and Russia rate against each other, that raises concerns about disruptions in oil supplies. All right. So I assume and, and we don't know what will happen if sanctions are imposed on Russia and can they sell their oil, all of and, and natural gas and, 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 and all of of that. U.S. production is ramping up oil, but also natural gas and liquefied natural gas exports. How much can the U.S. fill the gap here? Well, well the U.S. is already doing a significant job to fill the gap. Not only is U.S. oil and gas ramping up, U.S. is once again the world's largest producer of oil and gas, something that's not recognized necessarily widely in this country. And uh, half of all of the LNG, liquefied natural gas, that goes to Europe, which competes with the pipeline gas, comes from the United States. And this year, the United States is going to become the world's largest exporter of LNG. So we have a very important role to play in the security and keeping the lights on in Europe and giving them options as this crisis intensifies. You know, you uh, uh, so the, I mean, we can we can help uh, offset whatever Russia might do in response to sanctions if they decide to slow the production, the delivery of natural gas to to Europe. You t tell a great story about having a, a meeting Vladimir Putin at a meeting some years ago 
and asking him a question, and the issue of U.S. shale drilling and production came up. And Putin had a very revealing answer. Tell us about that. Well, uh, this was in front of 3,000 people, and basically uh, I was asking a question, the normal question about diversifying his economy from oil and gas. I mentioned shale. He interrupted me. He started shouting, and I tell you, being shouted out by Vladimir Putin in front of 3,000 people is not pleasant. And I realized <laughs> that the reason it's really not pleasant, uh, the reason that he did that is he saw what's only now becoming clear. One, U.S. LNG natural gas was going to compete with his gas in Europe. And two, he saw that the development of shale gas, shale oil, was going to increase, bring a new dimension of influence to the United States in the world that it hasn't had when it's a major importer. And we can see the flexibility. And we can see this has become very important in relations with Japan, Korea, India, that we're in this position. And Putin saw that coming a lot earlier and a lot sooner and a lot of people in this country. So the uh, what you're talking about here is not just the economic benefit, which we all understand of exports, more jobs, uh, and so and uh, you know, more uh, faster economic growth, but also the strategic benefit globally to the U.S. that comes from being able to be a marginal supplier, marginal in the best sense of the word, the extra production to the world. So my question is why, uh, you know, so when people say we want to limit U.S. production of those things, they're also saying we want to limit the influence of the United States in world uh, uh, circles, right? I mean, that just seems to follow. Yeah, I think that's right. This is a big, not only economic asset, as you say, it's a geopolitical asset. And yet, um, I mean, I see, you know, some in Washington are kind of waking up to that. Uh, because, you know, six months ago, it wasn't on the agenda at all. But it is a benefit. The Chinese import 75% of their oil. They would love to be in the position we are. And too many people just take it for granted. So where do we go from here? I mean, where do you see this? Uh, this uh, uh, I mean, do you see that the Biden administration's limits on U.S. Uh, production, where you can drill, for example, you can't drill on public lands. Uh, they want to limit offshore uh, 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 drilling. Are those, uh, are those, in your view, a risk to uh, U.S. energy production and to this influence geopolitically? Yeah, and it's not only administrative regulatory actions, it's also court decisions, all that limit it. And you need so many different permits to be able to get, this is a very highly regulated industry to get anything done. And so it is slowing, but it was interesting to see. And in, you know, in December, the energy secretary actually said to a group of oil people, can you increase the number of uh, oil rigs and increase oil production? I don't think she was so much looking at this crisis that's now happening with Ukraine, but that's very important. But also just looking at gasoline prices next November. Yeah, gasoline prices are always, uh, when they rise, they don't help the incumbents in office. Dan Jurgen, yeah. thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still ahead, as Democrats on Capitol Hill debate which taxes to raise, some state governors are getting serious about cutting taxes. We'll tell you which ones next. The post-pandemic recovery leaving states rolling in revenue, and while most are spending that windfall, others are looking to return the money to taxpayers. Today, just eight states have no personal income tax, but a dozen others are heading towards zero, or at least moving to reduce their rates. That includes Iowa, where the state legislature this week passed a 
bill that brings Republican Governor Kim Reynolds one step closer to her promise of a 4% flat tax by 2026. We're back with Dan Henninger and Kim Strasso. So, Kim, why the move to cut taxes in so many places? I mean, uh, our ship has come in. <laughs> yeah, competition. It's, it's competition. We love it, Paul. And I think, look, one of the main drivers here, you talk about those uh, states that have very low or no income tax. Uh, they were all the biggest recipients of all this migration between states that we saw over the last 10 years, which was recently documented by the census. And you add into that COVID and the fact that so many people have realized that their work doesn't necessarily need to be tethered to a, a high tax blue state. They can live where they want and still do their job. Um, you are seeing this race out there for the, from different states and governors to say, come to my state, come live here. And one of the biggest drivers of that is a, a more reasonable, rational uh, tax system, both for corporations and for individuals. Dan, something else that's going on here is the, the states really are rolling in revenue. They got that huge windfall from the federal government, uh, which they really didn't need, but they have anyway. Uh, also, the economy turns out to have been stronger than we thought. And here's the, the piece that I think is interesting, inflation. When you have uh, uh, not inf uh, nominal GDP rising fast, it's great for the government, right? It's not so great for taxpayers because what it does is it pushes taxpayers' inflation into higher tax brackets, even if their standard of living isn't increasing. So they get that windfall. So it's good to see some of these states returning it. What states are doing, are, are doing a good job? Well, the states that are doing it, it's an interesting question because the states that are doing a good job are mainly states run by uh, Republican governors. And currently, the states that are trying to push their tax rate down close to zero would include uh, West Virginia, North Dakota, Mississippi, Arizona, Oklahoma, and South Carolina. And, you know, a lot of those states are in the southeast. And as Kim was suggesting, there's a lot of in-migration, uh, both of individuals and companies, into those states. And it raises a really important distinction between the red and blue states. Some of the red and blue states are indeed trying to do something on taxes, but they're doing it in a very targeted way. They're giving rebates, or they're talking about cutting the gas tax uh, or food taxes, but they're very concerned about equity. So they won't drop the tax on upper incomes. Whereas Republican governors, by and large, are, are suggesting broad-based taxes. And as to your point about inflation, inflation cuts into everybody's income. And these governors are uh, trying to put tax cuts in that, like Kim Reynolds in, in Iowa, a 4% flat tax by 2026, which will benefit everybody from low income to higher income. And it's going to be a very interesting demonstration effect between conservative tax policies, broad-based tax policies, and the targeted, perhaps temporary ones the Democrats are instituting. Perhaps another ish, uh, uh, factor here, Kim, is the deductibility of state and local taxes against federal taxes. Yep. Remember, the 2017 reform limited the deduction to $10,000. <clears> now, Democrats have been saying when they took power, they would repeal that. Well, they haven't been able to do it. So you still have that limited deduction, which puts even more pressure on high-tax states. Yeah, this is simply a great example, Paul, and a lesson for Republicans. Good tax policy inspires good tax policy. Because if you remember back in 2017, there were Republicans who were reluctant to get rid of that deduction because it's a giveaway to a lot of upper middle class uh, people and they were worried about elections. But what is meant is that these high tax states, they cannot hide 
just how bad their tax policy is. And that has been encouraging people to leave as well, to go to other states. Um, and that has inspired all of these Republican jurisdictions to begin competing with each other to make their place the destination. So uh, if there's something that t GOP takes away from this is we need more of that as a federal level that that flattens and makes more sensible our, our federal income tax code. And Dad, there's all, Dan, there's always a bad exception to a good rule. And of course, New York is usually that exception. And they're the one state that <laughs> raised taxes uh, here in the right. pandemic. Uh, the top income tax rate going up in New York State to 10.9%. Add New York City, it's above 14. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, you know, th that is one of the other distinctions. The Democrats uh, in some of these states talk about keeping taxes high for reasons of they quote unquote fiscal responsibility. That's another way of saying that states like New York, Illinois and California have extraordinarily high budgets and levels of spending. And they're not inclined to cut that spending. I mean, that would be one answer to cut your spending and cut taxes as well. But they won't cut spending. And so they're pretty much locked into these high levels of taxation in big states like New York and Illinois. And they do run the risk, as Kim was suggesting earlier, of at the margin losing their most productive people as they move out of states like California and New York to escape those high tax rates. All right. When we come back, lessons from this week's Sarah Palin verdict, why the former Alaska governor may have won even in defeat. The New York Times winning a legal victory this week against Sarah Palin, with jurors rejecting the former Alaska governor's claim that the paper libeled her in a 2017 editorial that falsely linked her political rhetoric to a mass shooting. The verdict came a day after Judge Jed Rakoff said he planned to dismiss the case, even if the jury ruled in Palin's favor, arguing that her legal team failed to prove that the Times had acted with actual malice. We're back with Dan Henninger and Holman Jenkins. So, Holman, uh, what do you make of the verdict? Was it the right one? Well, under the Supreme Court precedent that makes it almost impossible for a public figure to win a libel case, it was the expected and right outcome. The real issue that this decision raises is, should that Supreme Court uh, precedent be revisited? Because it makes it uh, possible for newspapers and gives them an incentive to just make uh, egregious errors in an offhand way. Because the only way you can collect from them is if they knowingly printed something false or were so motivated by animus that they didn't care whether it was true or false. And that's a very hard standard to meet, and it lets a lot of really careless uh, newspapering go by the boards. Well, but, uh, yeah, okay, but let me, uh, on this point about uh, actual malice, I mean, this, the editorial at, at issue wasn't even about uh, uh, the original shooting that had, that where the press had falsely linked uh, Palin to. That was in 2011. This was a shooting by a Democratic supporter of Bernie Sanders, uh, of Republican congressman at a baseball game. Uh, uh, isn't that possibly a, an example of reckless disregard for the for the truth since they got it falsely uh, since they they were they made the mistake? Well, they weren't under deadline pressure because the shooting that they were referring to had happened six years before. And that this offhand uh, Internet meme that had been totally discredited, uh, you know, six years earlier, they threw into this latter day editorial as if they had forgotten or didn't care that it had been completely debunked. So there was something very careless going on there. 
But, uh, you know, they, they, they also, the New York Times immediately apologized for its error, and so it didn't try and defend it. So that's, you know, that alone is usually enough to get you off the hook for having acted with malice. So what do you make, Dan, of uh, Judge Rakoff saying, even before the jury ruled, uh, I'm going to dismiss this case? Is that grounds for appeal? It is undoubtedly grounds for appeal, and uh, I think Judge Rakoff understood that this case is going to be appealed to a higher level. And it's not inconceivable to me, Paul, that uh, Judge Rakoff may have been trying to uh, incentivize a case like this to get up to the Supreme Court and settle this issue of actual malice. Uh, You know, in 2021, in a similar case, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch said that the media landscape has changed. He raised this issue of actual malice. The media landscape has changed. and Maybe we need to readdress the question of this right now. Fact-checking isn't quite as good as it used to be and so forth. Well, the media landscape has changed. And many newspapers today seem to act more like those that we've had in Europe for a long time. Uh, blatantly partisan, blatantly associated with the Democratic Party, rather than simple neutral reporters of the news. And the question is whether actual malice uh, applies to a hot-button figure like Sarah Palin, or for that matter, Donald Trump. Are they simply reporting the news, or were they going after Sarah Palin? And as I say, both Justice Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, also in that 2021 decision, and Clarence Thomas earlier in 2019, said they would like to readdress the address the question of actual malice. So I think the press really has gotten itself out on thin ice uh, with this subject in the United States. Holman, you're uh, a, a journalist who benefits from that actual malice standard, not necessarily from anything you've written, but just in broad strokes, if, if you were sued, so do I. I benefit, so does the Wall Street Journal. What do you, but, uh, what do you think, should the court revisit that standard for the benefit of, uh, of the country, even if that puts us in a more vulnerable position for, for, for frivolous lawsuits? I don't think it was ever had to be such a, a bad standard because it basically requires reporters to want to tell the truth and to make a conscientious effort to tell the truth. We're going to make mistakes anyway. I think if they held the actual malice to mean that also counted when you just didn't care, you didn't make any effort, then it would work fine as it is, but basically it's become a get-out-of-jail-free card for journalists to say anything they want about a public figure. Dan, any uh, briefly here, any broader lessons in this case for journalism? Yeah, I think the broader lesson is, as Holmes is suggesting, that the American press has to be careful. They have to try to play it straighter than they have. And things went off the rails during Donald Trump's presidency. We called it Trump derangement syndrome. And a lot of reporters clearly were out to get the president. And that's not their job. Their job is to report the news rather than become as tendentious as they did during the four years of that presidency. Well, uh, maybe good luck with that. I hope you're yeah. right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, gentlemen. We have to take one more break. When we come back, hits and misses of the week. Time now for hits and misses of the week. Kim, first to you. Paul, a a hit to P.J. O'Rourke, America's funniest writer who we sadly lost this week to cancer at age 74. Like millions of Americans, I grew up reading P.J. O'Rourke, and two things really stood out for me. One, 
he was always funny, always laugh out loud funny, even about things that were decidedly not funny, which was brilliant. But two, he also had this unparalleled ability to explain with humor and to promote with humor what were, in fact, very complex uh, ideas of free market economics and policies. That's a skill most people don't have. There was no else like him, and, and he will be missed. Uh, Holman. Uh, Paul, uh, a former champion U.S. gymnast and a top executive at Levi Strauss, uh, the jeans company, hit a home run this week for freedom. She turned down a million-dollar severance package so she could say why Levi's, and she ran the Levi's brand there, why they ousted her, because she spoke openly and forcefully in favor of opening the schools despite COVID-19. Uh, you know, it's important that companies put their shareholders and their uh, customers first, but, you know, I don't think these displays of woke... Uh, cowardice are going to serve either customers or shareholders in the long run. Yeah, you're here. Dan. My miss goes to Russia when it isn't putting the entire continent of Europe at risk is busy corrupting the Beijing Olympics. Uh, Russia couldn't compete there as a country because they've been banned for repeated doping violations. Their athletes had to compete as individuals. So what do they do? They send in a 15-year-old, Kamila Valieva, who had been found to have used performance-enhancing drugs in December and made the skating competition a complete fiasco. So I'm going to give Russia a quadruple axle in lying and cheating. All right. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to my panel and to all of you for watching. I'm Paul Gigo. Hope to see you right here next week.